Well, good morning again. It's good, it's good to be with you. I've been out for a couple of weeks. I'm, uh, I'm grateful for Jeremy to be able to uh, fill in in my absence and bring the word to you in the mornings. Um, if you came this morning expecting the next session in Romans, I'm afraid I'm going to need to disappoint you. We're going to take a break from Romans for three or four weeks, that's all. Here at the beginning of the year, to take a look at a series on the church. Specifically, we're going to cover some of the things that we are to be and some of the things that we are to do as the church. The name of the series is Membership Matters. And so today I'm starting this series with a message entitled, What Are We Doing Here? And I'm not good at titling messages. That's why I like going through books from start to finish. The title is The Passage We're Doing. But this is not that type of a message. So I thought we'd just call this, What Are We Doing Here? Because I can imagine that some people go through our membership class, they meet with an elder and his wife maybe, or a couple of elders for a membership interview. They become known by the church, we put their name in the worship guide, people meet them, and then we go to a family meeting and and the church votes on them and they are admitted into the membership of Fairway Baptist Church. And then I wonder how many of them sit down and say, now what? What am I supposed to do now? What is my job? What is the preacher's job? What do the deacons do anyway? And should I get to know one of them? Oh yes, you should get to know one of them. Uh, Their names are listed on the back of the bulletin, so go look them up. So at the start of this new year, I want to try and answer some of those questions and maybe a few others as well. As we look at membership matters. So if we're going to talk about what we should do here as a church, maybe we should actually start with what the church is. And if you've gone through our Fairway 101 membership class, there's a pretty good working definition of a church as part of that class. But I want to take a little different approach this morning in defining it. So maybe it would be helpful to start with what the church is not. We're going to talk about what it is. Well, let's begin with what it is not. If you are a Christian, the church is not a club. It's not a voluntary organization where membership is optional for you. It's not a friendly group of people who share an interest in religious things. And so we gather weekly to talk about those things. Nor is the church a service provider where the customer has all the authority. Maybe you've worked in retail or in a service industry where you were told by your manager that the customer is always right. Have you ever heard that before? They're not right anymore. So the customers have gotten dumber. Okay. Well, that's good to know. If you're in those industries, my wife says, you do not have to abide by that anymore. We were always taught that the customer's always right, but that's not the church. The church is not here to provide you a service in which you have the authority over what 
service you receive. I mean, you can imagine in a room this size with this many people, everybody here as customers cannot be right about everything. And as Christians, we agree to disagree on some things, but we also understand that in the grand scheme of things, when it comes down to God's word and we disagree, one of us, at least one of us, is wrong. Both of us might be, but at least one of us is. So this is not a service provider where the customer has all the authority and the customer is always right. It's ironic, and I don't know where this started, I should probably look into it, that we refer to our gatherings as a church as services. It's as if we're telling people to pull into the church at 11 o'clock to get yourself serviced. It's like tune-ups for your soul in only 60 minutes. And that's not at all what the church is. You see, when we have a wrong view of the church, it can cause us to have a wrong view of how we are to live the Christian life. We get the idea that we have the authority to conduct our Christian life on our own. And we include the church piece of our Christian life just whenever we want to, whenever it's convenient and whenever we please. So those are some things the church is not, but what is it? Let's start with a broad answer, and let's say that the local church is the authority on earth that Jesus has instituted to officially affirm and give shape to my Christian life and to yours. That definition is loaded, and we could spend a lot of time on it. Even things like when and how Jesus instituted the church, to what does it mean to affirm my Christian life and to give shape to it. And maybe in some future uh, sermons on this topic, we may get into some of those things. But that's a very broad answer to what is the church. Let me put it another way. Let's move from speaking about the local church to speaking about the larger body of Christ. So let's say this. Christ shed his blood not just for individuals, but for a body of people, the church. Christ shed his blood for the church. The church is all of God's elect, the one holy, universal, and apostolic people of God gathered together in a visible organization. Let's see a little scriptural evidence of that, especially that Christ died not just for individuals, but for the church as a whole. We can go to the book of Acts, chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves. He's talking here to the Ephesians, the Ephesian elders, the elders of the church of Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So did you hear that? It is the church that Jesus obtained with his own blood. He did die for individuals. I don't want you to be confused, but not just individuals. He died for a people, a body, a bride, consisting of many people united in the bonds of a larger whole. 
So just in these two brief definitions, you see one is more of a definition of the local church. It's where I go to affirm my Christian life and to give shape to it. This church, all of you. The other is the universal church. All the people that Christ died for. All of the elect. So there is a local or a regional aspect to the church as well as a universal one. And again, in the weeks to come, we're going to look at some of the marks of a true church. And those should be important to you since you're the member of one. You should know whether the church you're a member of is doing church the right way. So we can start with the reformers. And they generally acknowledge three marks of a true church. Three marks of a true church. One was the true preaching of God's word. The true preaching of God's word. The second thing that they thought was a mark of a true church was the proper or correct administration of the sacraments or the ordinances. Are you doing those properly? And the third mark of a true church, this one's very interesting to me because so few churches do it today, is church discipline. So these were the three marks that the reformers believed characterized a true church of God. And we'll explore these in greater detail as we look more closely at, uh, at this, and including those broad definitions of the church. But the title of the message is, What Are We Doing Here? And so I thought these three marks were a good place to begin. So let's begin with true preaching of the word. And again, Scripture nowhere lists these things. You can search uh, some Bible search engine on what are the true marks of a Christian church, and there won't be a Scripture for you to go to. It might direct you to this quote from the Reformation, but there, there won't be verses for you. But there are passages throughout the New Testament that highlight these practices. And we can begin again in the book of Acts, chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So here in Acts chapter 2, Luke is simply describing for us the activities of the early church. And he begins by stating that they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. So it would be hard to conceive of any genuine church without a commitment to apostolic teaching. That's why when you come to this church and you hear public teaching, whether here in our Sunday morning gathering or in a Sunday school class or at any other time, we are committed to base that teaching solidly on the Word of God. And that may sound trivial to you, but when I or one of our other elders stands in the pulpit, the responsibility is heavy. You see, folksy and entertaining stories, funny illustrations, even scholarly quotations are fine, and we use those from time to time. But I have to remain resolute in my commitment to feed this church a steady diet of the truth of God's word. There is no substitute for this. 
you don't come here to learn about Scott. My life is not that interesting anyway. So personal stories or testimonies are not in themselves sufficient. You come here to learn about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and how he says we should live. And so if I depart from teaching the word, the sermons lose their divine authority over your lives. And we cease to operate as a true New Testament church. So when you ask, what are we doing here? Well, one of the things we should be doing here is listening and paying attention to sound biblical teaching. If that's not occurring here, then I, as your friend, would just tell you you should find another church where it is. So we're going to talk about church discipline later. We may do a whole sermon on church discipline. So that leaves the ordinances. That was the second mark that the reformers brought out. There's something we should be doing here. But before I even jump into that, I want to mention that there could be other things you would list on this group of things that are marks of a true church. Maybe you would put worship on there. Shouldn't a true church be active in worshiping God? I think you could add that as a mark. What about the Great Commission? Shouldn't a mark of a true church be to share the gospel with the world? Well, sure. But I think we sort of blur the lines here in what the Reformers called the marks of a true church and what we would refer to as the task of the church. You see, the Reformers were referring to those very few absolute requirements for a church to be a church. Sound biblical teaching, proper administration of the ordinances, and church discipline. Yes, there are other things we can do and should do, but without those three, you're not a true church, according to them. And when we consider the task of the church, let's just put off the ordinances for a bit, and when we talk about the task of the church, I think we can describe it like this. The church is the headquarters of God's kingdom on earth. So her task is to take the gospel to all nations to evangelize, to nurture, and to celebrate the presence of Christ. And of course, each of those have multiple subheadings under them, I imagine. The one of the tasks on this list, it says to celebrate the presence of Christ, is worship. In worship, we acknowledge the greatness of our covenant Lord. But there are three important truths we need to know about worship, and it guides how we do worship at this church. First, worship must be biblical. Do you remember how Jesus reprimanded the Pharisees in Matthew? Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. It says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So you see here, they got away from true 
preaching of the word and in its place substituted preaching of their own commandments, their own traditions, and it sullied everything they did, including their worship. You see, one of the hardest things to, to, I don't know if discover is the right word, but to acknowledge in our life is that worship is for God's pleasure, not our own. So everything we do in worship must have a biblical basis. And we call that the regulative principle. Everything we do in this service has a biblical basis. And that truth that worship is for God's pleasure, not our own, is a difficult one to learn. If that's true, if you believe that, and someone comes up to you and says, I didn't like the worship this morning. Oh my gosh, the temptation is to say, so what? It wasn't for you. That might not be the most tactful way to answer that question. I don't know that I would recommend it. But if you say that to me, that's probably what you're going to hear because I've never been known for tact. Um, It's not for us. We are offering it as a sacrifice of praise to God. It's for him. It must be biblical. That's the first truth. The second truth about worship is that it must be God-centered. And therefore, being a New Testament church, Christ-centered as well. When you read the Psalms in the Old Testament, you'll see how often they dwell on God's nature and on God's actions. And in the New Testament celebration of the resurrection, you see things like this from Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Not a lot of songs about ourselves. God-centered, Christ-centered worship is principle number two. The third principle is that worship is edifying. You say, well, how can that be? You just told me it's to be Christ-centered and not me-centered, so how can it be edifying to me? Well, that's a good question. Let's look to Scripture. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to loving good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, as we participate in this kind of worship, in Christ-centered, God-centered worship, we still grow from it. It still encourages us, builds us up, makes us stronger. It's edifying. One little side note I'll throw in about contemporary worship. The reformers declared that worship should no longer be in Latin, but that it should be in the vernacular languages of the people. So if you lived in Germany and you went to church, your worship service should be in German. Why would it be in Latin, which no one understood? Today, to extend that principle, I think we need to make some pains to make our worship clear and understandable in our communities. Our language and our music should communicate to the mind and the heart should be understandable. And I think this principle, as churches realized it, is what opened the door for contemporary worship. And in general, 
Contemporary worship is good, as long as it's biblical and Christ-centered and edifying. In fact, here we do a lot of contemporary songs and our worship team are very good about making sure the lyrics adhere to the truth of Scripture. Uh, And when we find a song that doesn't, we don't sing it. Okay, so if you're talking about the tasks of the church, I think you have to throw in worship. In fact, if you want to make that the mark of a true church, I think you can. I think it would be hard to uh, conceive of a church that met together and didn't worship, but there may be some of those. So that's a part of the task, to worship. Another part of the task is to nurture. That was in that definition as well. And by nurture, what I mean there is the preaching and the teaching and the counseling and the pastoral care and the missions of mercy that the church does. So everything from the preaching and teaching to taking care of emotional needs and counseling to also taking care of physical needs in the mercy ministries. You see, the reason this is so important is because sin continues even in the lives of saved people. And so because that's true, the church needs to bring us again and again to repentance. It needs to turn us away from pride and from self-satisfaction so that we can be humbled and we will turn again and again and again to the all-sufficiency of Christ. That is part of the work of the church. Finally, you could say, and I think this was in that definition as well, is that part of the task of the church is to evangelize or to witness to the world. Because of the Great Commission, uh, the unbeliever should always be in view of the activities of the church. What's interesting to me, the worship service is typically and in a narrow sense, for believers. We are worshiping a God that an unbeliever doesn't even comprehend. So worship, in a narrow sense, is mainly for believers. But what's interesting to me is that Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, describes a situation where an unbeliever walks into a worship service. And he's really talking about the difference in those who want to speak in tongues and those who want to prophesy or speak the truth about God. He says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So even in our worship service, we need to have an eye for unbelievers, and make sure that what we do is understandable to them as much as we can, which also means a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they might accept him as Savior. Well, I got a little off track um, talking about the marks of a true church and then veering into the task of the church, but I think that helps us answer the question of what are we doing here. But I want to return to the ordinances And the reason is that these ordinances were directly commanded by Jesus himself. All right, let's get this out of the way. I'm going to probably use the terms 
sacrament and ordinance interchangeably. I'm not Roman Catholic, so I don't think there's um, powers to save you in the ordinances. I don't want you to get that idea. They're not salvific in that way. But I just, because so much, especially older writings use them, even Protestant writings, I tend to confuse them and depends on which quote I'm using. So don't get hung up on that. The two ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Two sacraments, if you will. And Scripture has a lot to say about baptism and the Lord's Supper, but it never groups them together into a larger category called the sacraments. In fact, if theologians hadn't grouped them together, there might be a lot less controversy about them. But there are similarities between the two that make it useful to discuss them together sometimes. Let's start with a very broad definition. The sacraments consist of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism, first of all, identifies us with Christ and his people. Okay? Identifies us with Christ and his people. So the Lord's Supper, in that we eat and we drink in Christ's presence to remember his death, to receive present spiritual nourishment, and to look forward to the great banquet to come. All right, so let's take them one at a time. Here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith describes baptism. This is not scripture. This is just a statement of faith. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. Which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. All right. So in this statement, we see that baptism is first the right of entrance into the visible church. It is admission into Fairway Baptist Church when you are baptized here. Just like a person takes an oath of citizenship to become an American citizen, so we undergo baptism to become members of the visible Christian church. It is baptism that gives us the right to be recognized as Christians unless or until we are excommunicated. And it's very interesting in those three marks of the church, he lists the ordinances, which baptism is admission into the church, and then excommunication is your dismissal from the body of Christ, the church. And so in those marks, it means the church controls both the front door and the back door. You, not me, not just the elders, but all of you decide who is a member of the church. And all of you decide who we exercise church discipline against and usher them out the back door until they repent. 
So baptism gives us the right to be part of the great work that God is doing through his church. It is your entrance, your admission into God's church. The second thing baptism represents, or the second thing is, baptism represents repentance. And we see this in the ministry of John. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 3, first in verse 6, it says, And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And in verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this baptism represents this repentance because we must recognize that we are in need of God's cleansing, that we are sinners. So when a person is baptized, it is because he has confessed his sins. They turn from them and they ask for God's forgiveness. Baptism doesn't accomplish this. It represents this. It pictures it. So third thing that baptism does is it symbolizes union with Christ. It's interesting in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, in this Great Commission, we are instructed to baptize. Very clear. But the word in, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the Greek is actually translated as into We are to baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And to be baptized into someone is to belong to that person. Paul discusses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The passage is too long for us to get into this morning. But you can read that on your own if you would like. But it's also in Romans where Paul says that we have been baptized with Christ in his death and resurrection, dying with him to sin and rising with him to new life. So Paul many times speaks of Christians as being, quote, in Christ, unquote. And friend, all the blessings of salvation are are based on our union with Christ. You can see these blessings listed out in what is referred to, or at least part of them are listed out, in the Ordo Salutis, which is Latin for the order of salvation. It's found in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And we see things like our calling, our effectual calling is a calling into union with Christ. Our regeneration means being created anew in the image of Christ. Faith and repentance are in, upon, and into Christ Justification, adoption, and sanctification are all blessings of union with Christ as being in Him. You see, baptism does not give us eternal salvation. Don't get me wrong. Baptized people do sometimes betray the Lord. And when they do that, they receive the curses of the covenant rather than the blessings. But baptism does entitle the baptized person to all the blessings of fellowship with God in the church and with God's people. And while baptism doesn't save, it was in the early church always the first step 
of the Christian life. Let me just read these verses to you very quickly. I think they're all, yes, they're all from the book of Acts, which is about the early church. Acts chapter 2, first of all, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later in verse 41 of chapter 2, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts chapter 8, verse 12, But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Acts 9, 18, And immediately... Something like scales fell from his eyes. This is Paul. And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Acts 16.33, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Acts 18.8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Acts twenty two sixteen and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So in this church, we baptize all those who accept Christ as their Savior and desire membership with us. But there's another ordinance, and it's the one we'll be observing this morning. And so I want to devote the last few minutes of my time to this, and that is the Lord's Supper. You see, if baptism is the sacrament given only once, then the Lord's Supper is the sacrament of continuing fellowship with God to be received over and over again. In Scripture, even in the Old Testament, you see table fellowship was an important element of the covenant blessing. Table fellowship with God. When two people were at odds... They needed to be reconciled. And we know that reconciliation can, of course, be rather superficial. But when it is deep and profound and when it is complete reconciliation, you not only become friends again, even though you were formerly enemies, but you have the other party over for dinner. That was often the case in the ancient Near East. You find examples of this with Jacob in Genesis chapter 31. You can see it with David in 2 Samuel 9 and with David's final instructions to his son Solomon in 1 Kings 2. So in the grand scheme of things, the fall has made us enemies with God. We've talked about that in Romans. And yet God provided food for Adam and Eve even before the fall, Genesis 1.29, but we know that they abused that privilege and ate the one fruit that he kept from them. But you see, even though mankind fell, God, through Jesus Christ, desires reconciliation with us. And that reconciliation is so deep, so complete, that he invites us to share a meal with him. But we see this throughout Scripture. After the great flood, God provided food for Noah and his family inviting them to eat for the first time the flesh of animals as well as the fruit of the garden. In Genesis 9, 3, it says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. You remember when God redeemed his people out of Egypt? He gave them a, sacrament, a sacramental meal, the Passover. 
as a memorial of their salvation and as a memorial of the covenant they now had with God. You can see that in Genesis chapter 12, excuse me, Exodus chapter 12. When Israel met with God at Mount Sinai on the day of assembly, God made a covenant with them as his people and called 70 elders up to the mountain to eat and to drink with him. That's in Exodus 24, 9 through 11. It says, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. We know that for all the people of God, he provided manna for them on their long journey to the promised land in Exodus chapter 16. But then when you go to the tabernacle offerings, they were also food. Have you ever noticed that? When God gave instructions on what to bring to him as offerings, he never mentioned gold and silver or gemstones or anything like that. That stuff was used in the construction of the tabernacle. But the offerings were offerings of food. Bread and flagons of wine were kept on a table. And again, inside the temple as well. This food, sometimes called the bread of presence, was an offering to the Lord in Leviticus 24. And it represented a covenant relationship between God and Israel. The animal sacrifices, we have the whole burnt offering, sin offering, guilt offering. These all focused on the idea of atonement. Paying the price, shedding of blood for our sins. Another of the tabernacle offerings called the peace offering counted on that atonement as having been completed. It focused on the reconciliation between God and the Israelites. You see, the peace offering was a meal. Part of it was burned up for God. Part of it was eaten by the priests. Part of it was eaten by the worshipers. And it celebrated reconciliation. So can you see the foundation of the worship meal that was set in the Old Testament? It's no wonder that a first century Jew would never have been surprised to hear that the Lord's Supper was the new covenant in Jesus' blood. We have a covenant, we have a meal. And we hear that language in Luke twenty-two twenty, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then when Paul teaches on it, what we read in here, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So whenever we take the Lord's Supper, just as the way Israel took the Passover and these other meals, we renew the covenant relationship between God and ourselves. Also, these meals with God provide continuing nourishment and they provide fellowship with Him. Think of how David characterized his meal in Psalm chapter 23, verse 5, where he talks about God setting a table for him in the midst of his enemies. Think of how God. God's wisdom, this is very interesting. Let me just read this to you. Proverbs chapter 9. God's wisdom is described as a woman who sets a meal for those who pass by. 
Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts and she has mixed her wine. She's also set her table. She has sent out her young woman to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come and eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. So even wisdom in its personification here prepares a meal. Think of Jesus who twice miraculously fed great multitudes. Matthew 14 and 15. Think of how Jesus after his resurrection invited his disciples to come and eat with him. All of this anticipates the great meal in heaven, the messianic banquet, the wedding supper of the Lamb in which we celebrate the consummation of our redemption. Luke 13 says, And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. In Revelation chapter 19, it says, And the angel said to him, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So as we eat and drink now, we look forward to his coming when we will eat and drink with consummate joy. So, very quickly, Whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we should reflect on the past, the present, and the future. We should remember him in his death, thanking him for his complete salvation. This is the past. The Lord's Supper is sometimes called the Thanksgiving feast because in Scripture, there is thanksgiving before every element. And the same thing is done here. Our elders pray before we take any portion of the meal. That's why it's sometimes called the Eucharist. That comes from the Greek word meaning to give thanks. So in the past, we give thanks for what Christ has done for us. In the present, we know that we can gain spiritual nourishment only from Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? So for us, by eating and drinking, we participate in his body and blood. And by that, we sense a greater union with him. There is current benefit to it. And finally, as we eat and drink, we look forward to the greater banquet to come. You see, we eat only little portions. We don't even pretend that what we're doing now, it will measure up in any way to the great marriage feast of the Lamb. So that's our introduction. That is, what is a church in broad terms? And what are we doing here? And so we went over some general tasks of the church. And then we focused on the ordinances that were commanded by Jesus himself. And this morning, we'll now proceed to partake in one of those ordinances. So I'm going to ask our musicians and our deacons and elders who will be serving this morning to come and take their places.